this is Kate Scalsa, and I'm the author of Luminary, A Magical Guide to Self-Care. I made Luminary because I wanted to talk to some of the most interesting, magical people I know about some tools that help us navigate the complexities of this ongoing process of life. And that's what you're going to hear in these episodes, me talking with magical people about these tools and what they can bring to our lives. These interviews were originally recorded as a series on Instagram Live, so you'll get our full authenticity and even some charming glitches. I hope these conversations help you. And if you want more, I hope you'll find your way to a copy of Luminary. You can start that journey by finding my book on my website, kateskelsa.com. That's K-A-T-E-S-C-E-L-S-A.com. Hello. Hello, children. Today we are talking about uh, the complications of having a body under capitalism. Welcome. We are also talking about these books, uh, my book Luminary, A Magical Guide to Self-Care that is coming out November 8th, and my special guest, Erin Clark's book. If you really love me, throw me off the mountain. We're having some technical difficulties, so um, I've got Erin on FaceTime on the computer I don't know if this is going to work exactly. Let's see what happens if we just give you Aaron. Okay, hold on. Here. <laughs> Here she is. And then we can give you me. And thank you all for... I'm over here, a little up there. I mean, it's a little silly, but Aaron, you don't mind being um, the focus of our attention do you no the point i think the point of our conversation usually is that you're very comfortable with that <laughs> um so we'll just do it this way if that's okay with you aaron that's fine can they see you or, or really it's just me i think it's really you but they will hear me okay and uh i think that's enough for them i can sort of check in with the people um but also, I mean, mostly it's about our conversation. So, uh, and I'm happy for the people to get to look at you exclusively because, really, what are we doing here? Um, <laughs> I wish I'd put on lipstick now. Oh no, no, sorry guys. <laughs> you look gorgeous. So, um, so I'm doing this series. Well, here I can turn them to me for a minute. I can go back and forth. So I'm doing this series of uh, little Instagram live conversations with the people that I interviewed for my book, Luminary, um, which is a self-help book about how to use uh, both um, mystical and practical tools to help with stress and depression, and uh, specifically for young adults, um, not so secretly for everybody. And one of the really important things that I wanted to do with this book was uh, look at how we can take these tools, use tools like tarot and astrology and energy work and bring them into really, really practical contexts, talking about mental health, talking about, last week we talked um, with Beth Pickens about career and how to create um, careers and creative practices that would um, allow for sort of 
healthy, energetic relationships to our goals and our lives. Um, and Aaron was kind enough to talk with me for my chapter about bodies uh, because my own experience of magic and of learning about energy and how energy works has been a big role in uh, me figuring out how to navigate my relationship with my own body. So, uh, so yeah, this is Erin's incredible memoir. I love it so much. It's so good. Every time I give someone a copy, they're like, what was that book? Like, this book is so good. If you really love me, throw me off the mountain. Um, she's such a beautiful writer. It's a page turner. Like, literally, I could not put it down. Erin uh, is the author of If You Really Love Me, Throw Me Off the Mountain and co-author of The, of the Breakup Artist, which is out now. Erin is the current world record and gold medal holder for wheelchair parapole and two-time national champion representing Spain. And as a paragliding pilot, she has a wheelchair that can fly. Uh, there are videos of Aaron's flying wheelchair that are so thrilling to watch. And that's a lot of what this book is about. Um, and uh, she's also just my friend, and I adore her, and she's so fun to talk to. So I'm so glad that she is with me today, even over FaceTime. Um, <laughs> sometimes technology gets the best of us. I'm going to turn to her so you guys can see her and hear me. Here we go. There she is. Okay. Okay. So, Erin, hi. 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 Um, I, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but um, just to start, I wonder if you could tell a little bit of the story of how you came to paragliding, because it's so, I mean, first of all, if, you, if someone really wants to know, they should read your book, but can you give us just a little taste? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was on a cross-Europe road trip with a friend and we went to Zermatt. Uh, actually the whole, I mean, this, I could start this, I could talk about just this thread for quite a long time. So right. I'll try to keep it brief, but I met this friend on a boat in Norway <laughs> and this couple that were also on the boat with us got engaged and they were from Switzerland. And so we got invited to their wedding and we were on this road trip on the way to their wedding. And then after their wedding, we stopped in Zermatt where they were also happening to be for their honeymoon. So we just like crashed this couple's like <laughs> engagement, wedding and honeymoon. Yeah, well done. Yeah. Thank you. Uh -huh. And um, I decided that I wanted to see the... Um, the uh, sheep, They're the black-nosed sheep, there's a name for them that has escaped me. They're very cute, and their noses are black, and their paws are black, and they're really, their hair is really curly. Uh -huh. And there was this excursion where you could go see the sheep, but it was like a hike, and I wasn't quite sure. So we were having dinner um, at this random restaurant, uh, and because the couple is Swiss, they say to the waitress in Swiss, 
hey, if we wanted to go see the sheep, how do we do it? And she says, oh, well, um, the family that owned the sheep owned the restaurant. Let me go. And oh my God. <laughs> the patriarch who comes to the table very gruffly and he's like, you want to see the sheep? Okay, be here tomorrow, 9 a.m. And then that was it. <laughs> so, so we went the next morning at 9 a.m. And they had, like, because there was, like, a gondola to go up, so they had kind of figured out, like, which gondola we needed so that my chair would fit in it with me. Right. And then we get to the top, and everybody's, like, pre- they're, like, preparing for their hike, and I'm, like, do-do-do-do-do, don't know what, I still have no idea what's going to happen. And this guy come, rolls up in a Jeep, and he says, hi, I'm Hubie, I'm your driver. So they had just, like, arranged for someone to drive me to the point where the sheep were while everyone else hiked. Yeah. And it was really great. He, what I loved was how, like, as, because this is, like, we're up in the Matterhorn, right? Which is this, like, epic mountain. Yeah. And, and people are hiking, and, and it's it can be really treacherous and dangerous and, and very long hikes. So just as a part of the mountain culture, whenever we came across hikers, he would slow down and greet them and check in with them just in case, you know, anybody was in non-obvious distress, right? Uh, And then at one point, we're, like, driving along, and it turns out he's talking about, like, the sheep and how they herd and how he finds them. And I'm like, oh, oh, are you the shepherd? And he's like, no, I'm the chef. I cook the sheep. Oh. Okay, that's really... I'm so glad that you know how to find them. Oh, my (laughs) God. We're driving along, and we're looking for the sheep, and then he you know, just kind of points to the sky and he goes, oh, are you going to do that while you're here? And I look up and he's referencing this like teeny tiny little spot of color very, very far up. And I'm like, what is that? He's like, that's paragliding. And I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, you can just do that? Right. Like, what what is the path to go from being a person who is me sitting beside you in a Jeep to a person who is that in right. the sky. What, like, what is the road to, like, that? How do you do that? He's like, oh, there's just, like, a place in the town, and they just take you up. They just arrange it. So I'd never even considered it before. I didn't even know it existed until that moment. And then after I got back into town, um, I went and signed up. I went to the school or the kiosk or the, you know, like, the people who organize it. It was a bunch of Australians. And said, hey, I would like to try. And it was, like, very last minute. Normally, it's, like, a super booked thing. And, you know, like, it's a very popular activity. And, you know, like, not only am I showing up last minute, but, like, there's a lot of logistics to work out. Right. Of how to even get me to do this, right? And I'd never done it before, so I had no frame of reference. So I couldn't offer any solutions. Like, it was just... I don't know, a series of me showing up places going, I want to try this. Right. And people being like, great, this sounds fun. And I th- that was my first introduction to paragliding pilots and that they had that kind of a sensibility of like, yeah, I mean, there isn't a huge difference conceptually between the average non-disabled paragliding pilot going, I would like to run off the edge of a mountain Right, right. <laughs> make that happen, and them adapting that to me. Like it, this, it's not a fundamentally different sensibility, and the technicalities involved are actually just kind of interesting. Not, you know, right? They, I mean, you ended up wanting to be able to 
fly with your wheelchair so that when you well that came much later i mean that flight that first flight i like i'm in the air for the first time and that's a very like your first the first time you ever do it there's this like my expectation was that i would feel um like i was free falling almost somehow like it was very difficult yeah. to conceive what it would feel like i felt like i would feel the groundlessness and in reality you're kind of you're in this harness that's attached to the wing so you're sitting and you're you know like oh i'm in a seat like i'm aloft and because your hands are on you know the, these controls that are attached to the wing you're moving it right. you know you can turn it you can go faster and slower you can choose make choices in the air based on the opportunities the wind gives you and so it's actually significantly more collaborative than i anticipated and i was drunk on it like i was <laughs> terrified i was crying i like it was just exhilarating and from and you're sitting in front of a pilot who's behind you and he's like you should get into this and i'm like well how do you do that he goes you live in spain there are schools all over spain they just teach it to you right. so of course right like i'm thinking this is one of those like really out of touch sports that like I don't know, people in the know somehow like learn ruggedly, but like, no, you can sign up for a course they teach you in a week. Right. It was very straightforward. Right. And so at that point, then I went home to Spain and immediately like found a school and found Jose at Zero Gravity. And over the course of the years, uh, like when I when I messaged, you know, Jose, I was like, look, my goal is to be able to fly on my own. Like, I don't want to come and just be in a tandem the whole time. Right. But I don't, like, I don't know what that will require. And, you know, I'm just keen to, to experiment and play around. And it took us a while. Like, it took us a couple of years of me going back um, to Algo Donales where the mountains were and, you know, trying out different kinds of equipment and configurations. And finally, it was me who said that, like, I, you know, I'm in these contraptions where once I land, I'm completely trapped until somebody comes and carries me out. Right. When I take off... You know, like everybody's in control of my glider, but me. So I don't really feel, I don't know how to tell when I'm doing it and when, you know, and I said like, what other pilots are practicing and learning is based on like their sense of their body on the ground. Right. Like that's where the practice comes in. And my sense of my body on the ground is through wheels. Right. I don't have another sense. Like that is my body on the ground. It's wheeled. So, you know, if I want to have the same kind of autonomy as a pilot, independence as a pilot, I have to fly a wheelchair. And um, he thought that was a terrible idea. He did. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's dangerous. Right. So and, and not and it's he's not comfortable in the chair. Right. So like he he um, tested it out a few times and was just like, Aaron, it's really hard to land and I'm falling over all the time. And I, and I, at that point was because I'd had now experience. I knew what flying was like. Right. I was barely sure that his discomfort with the chair on the ground was because he's not used to a chair on the ground, right. not because of the flying part of it. So I, um, did it anyway, you know, like I, there was, <laughs> There was a team of guys that were, you know, sort of part of the process. And Luisma actually helped retrofit the chair. And then he became the guy that, like, worked on the launches with me because it's it's a two-person thing. Because in order to inflate a glider, you have to run into the wind so that it can the wind can get underneath it. Right. But my hands are on the glider, so I don't have hands to push the chair. So someone has to be pushing me right. in order for me to get lift. 
And that relationship is like, now there's my body, the extension of my body, which is my wheelchair, and the extension of my wheelchair, which is Luisma, plus the glider. And that is just such a, like, incredible sort of choreography of legs and arms and, you know, fabric. Uh, and, yeah, so now I have the flying wheelchair. I mean, the reason I love hearing about this is... Because to me, it's such a microcosm of a lot of the things we discussed in our conversation in the body chapter in my book where, I mean, separate from the fact that you are an athlete and are someone who enjoy I mean, I call you an adventurer in the book, which is a title I, like I don't that. think you mind. You are someone who enjoys um, trying new things and taking risks and doing these very... Um, physical things that I think just that comes naturally to you as part of your personality. This experience of paragliding in particular, I think from what I've heard you say is sort of a microcosm of the way that you've approached your body and life and movement in general, which is sort of like about problem solving and problem solving as, um, something thrilling and exciting that any kind of, you know, perceived limitations or perceived complications or something that's just sort of like unusual for the situation is not a detriment for you. It's like, okay, cool. Let's figure out how to make my wheelchair fly. That sounds exciting. <laughs> yeah. And it was also born out of experience, you know, cause I had been flying and so I was learning what, made me uncomfortable about it or what was frustrating. Right. And, and it was, you know, like, I think part of it is, you know, that those things don't always work out. <laughs> and like, we did the wheelchair right. and it was fine. You know, I could fly it. I could land it. Like That's so amazing. It was so exciting. But Luis and I had to like bend over in half and it was like really painful for him. So we had to like add hand handles to the back, which like, you will never see me in a wheelchair in public with handles. Right. So like, and that would not, that wasn't for my benefit, you know, like that's not something I'm used to thinking of in relation to like my wheelchair, but it was, you know, like now I had this like extra layer of self. <laughs> right. In a way. So yeah, it was, um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a collaborative process yeah. between me and my body and my body and my environment and all of the people that are sort of involved in that. But yeah, it's, it's, it is kind of the point in and of itself. I think I write in the book how like, you know, the thing that made paragliding really exciting to me was that there was a question about how I would do it that was not immediately answerable. Yeah. And had I done the first flight and immediately known how I would adapt that, I'm not sure that I would have felt as compelled to pursue it. Right. I wouldn't have had the same drive to stick with it. And so, like, if there are are obstacles, but that's, or rather, let me say, an obstacle is not necessarily the same thing as a solution process, right? right? Like, there are tons of things that are just in my way. I know how I would come, you know, get past them. It isn't worth it. Like, right. That's not interesting to me. And so it's, it's the unanswerable. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't know what the experience will be like until I have it. And then that will give me all this other information that I don't have any access to unless I'm 
in this process of experimenting and other people are the variables my body is the variable my psychology is the variable i'm terrified of heights so like there's a lot crazy to me (laughs) how is that possible (laughs) erin i mean i cry i get so nervous the adrenaline gets so high that i'm like (laughs) 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 yeah so i don't know i think um I would say that, yeah, it is the reason that I used paragliding as sort of the main metaphor in my memoirs, because it's a really good reflection of my established relationship with my body and the way that I work with it in environments that are never really that. My life isn't that different than paragliding. Totally. Being disabled in a non-disabled world is like rolling off the edge of a mountain a lot of the time. Right. Right. Well, and you talked, you said to me something really interesting that when, um, I mean, I want to get into talking about this idea of other people's perception of you and um, an idea of what other people think you are or are not capable of. But you said, I mean, and that goes for all of us, um, that you said something that was like, when other people expect you to not be able to do something, it frees you up for then doing it in a way that's unexpected and coming up with a brand new way of doing something. I think a lot about, um, there were some videos you were making for a while where um, you were hiking, but your chair couldn't deal with the terrain. And so you would get out of your chair and you would, you would crawl to get to these spots that you wanted to get to and that that was you know you wanted to hike up this mountain so and again like this is your personality that you're someone who's like I want to get up the mountain I'm getting up the mountain like fuck this like don't tell me I can't but also I think there's something really interesting about being excused from an idea that you you should be able to do it in a way that makes sense to other people because that's not that's not part of your framework for the way your body's going to work so then fuck that yeah (laughs) sorry i just i just paraphrased i just love it so much you covered it i think i covered it i don't know what the question is in there i guess the question is what is the here's the question the question is what is the motivation in there is it just about your determination your excitement your adventurer spirit because so many people would allow an outside perception of them to sort of shut down that process of wanting to explore okay if i can't do it in the way that other people expect me to be able to do it then then what? I mean, I'm asking, I'm literally asking that, like, how do I do that, Erin? How do you be adventurous? Is that? How do I be adventurous? How do I, how do I function? How do I allow myself to function in a way that is about sort of problem solving and not caring about how it looks when I solve that problem? Oof. Okay. I'll say that I think one of the weird benefits to being born disabled, I was born with my body functioning this way, and my body mechanics have stayed more or less the same, you know, aside from just growing, Right. is that 
I learned how to use this body as a child when crawling around and and doing what I wanted was societally acceptable as well as medically acceptable. Um, so if I, you know, wanted to play and I, you know, scrambled and crawled and clunked uh, and climbed, um, the childness of all of those movements was matched by my peers. Everybody else was moving in the same way. So, right. so my earliest senses of using my body were using it the way that it works, you know? Um, and so by the time I was starting to get the messages from mostly doctors, medical practitioners, that I needed to be focused on getting my body to work the way a non-disabled body works as close as possible. Right. I had 13 years of doing it my own way. I, I, and also I was 13, so I knew better. Yeah. You know, and that, I think that's a little bit where my personality came in. Um, and also the nature of the kinds of things that I enjoy doing. You know, if I wasn't, if my act, favorite activities as a child hadn't been athletic, then I probably wouldn't necessarily have had as much experience using my body in these adventurous athletic ways. You know, it it is a little bit recursive in that sense, but it reinforced the idea that my, you know, I get to use my body the way my body works for me. And, you know, I think also the fact that, um, the feeling of holding myself back from something that I want to be part of is so much more unpleasant right. than the feeling of knowing I'm being watched for what I'm the way that I'm doing it. Um, and you know, to some extent, it's as simple as as familiarity. I get looked at no matter what I'm doing, right. and so at some point, it just wears off. I just don't care. Right. I'm not registering what other people's impressions are. And even when they go out of their way to tell me what those impressions are, which they frequently do, it just has so little uh, power in comparison to the experience I'm having through my senses. Right. And so, like, you know, in in particular, something like crawling when I'm hiking, you know, it's hard for me to get too caught up in other people's impressions of, of a grown grown person crawling because I'm having a richness of experience that they're missing being so far away from the ground. I can feel the terrain on my hands right. because I'm crunching it close to my face. I smell very clearly what's happening mm-hmm. around me. I see colors and textures that I'm experiencing so much more of it. Right. And that's really great for writing. So, you know, the, it makes it so much easier for me to describe scenes and experiences that I'm having through my senses because I'm gaining so much sensory input. Right. Just the way that I go about my life. And other people just don't, they don't have it. Or if they do, what they have is accessible to everyone else around them. Right. It's not very unique. You know, you're, you're like... Well, and what I love about this is I feel like a theme that I talk about a lot in the book is if we are thinking that we should be any way other than what we are, 
you know, mentally, physically, whatever. And, you know, we'll get to capitalism in a second. If we're being told there's something wrong with us by a system or we're being told by a system we should be a different way than what we are, what happens is we're not centered in the moment and the potential of the moment. So beyond even, like, looking at the positive side of things or being optimistic, like, literally, if this moment we're telling ourselves, I shouldn't be like this, these shouldn't be my needs, this shouldn't be the way I need to do something. Right, literally, if you had kept yourself back from saying, I shouldn't crawl, you would not get the full richness of that experience. And I think what is so, one of the things I love about hearing you talk about this is that you're such a sensory person that it's so immediately apparent to you, like, I'm on the ground. This is amazing. You know? <laughs> yeah, like, it is for me. It's just... I'm so viscerally yeah. apart yeah. of the world. <laughs> and I... How, it's, it's, so, it's so pale to me in comparison to that. Right. That somebody would be like, oh, well, I think less of you because you're crawling. So? Right. Like, it just... It's... Yeah, yeah. Like, it is just not a... It's not a... Um, yeah it's not a fair equal exchange and the (laughs) the way that we're robbed of I mean if you think about that in terms of mental health also like if we think our minds should work differently from the way that they work the way that we're then robbed of whatever our mind is doing in this moment and getting to see it clearly and appreciate it and see what the potential is there and I do think I mean yeah you used I think you used the word uniqueness and, like, to me, this is all very Age of Aquarius work. Like, this is all very, like, what kind of amazing weirdo are are you? And what, you know, and, like, what do does each of us have then to bring out in ourselves that maybe is not going to be a comfortable fit within current systems? And it's not supposed to be. Like, that's, to me, that's the work right now. So, well, let's talk about capitalism. (laughs) Uh, Because, so I've mentioned this before. I mean, I'll mention this in every one of these conversations. That, um, for me, you know, capitalism is completely about that good-bad binary, right? Like, we want, capitalism wants to be able to say... This is good or this is bad. You are sick or you are well. There's no in-between. There's only uh, black and white and there's no gray here. And and that everyone is bad. I mean, the, you know, the spoiler alert of capitalism is everyone's yes. bad. Everyone is not living up to whatever arbitrary standard and therefore should pay a bunch of money to... Um, quote unquote fix whatever is wrong with themselves and their bodies and their minds and also don't spend a lot of time uh figuring out your amazing unique weirdoness instead spend all of your time hating yourself sounds like a great time (laughs) so this is the system under which we live i was 
also really interested in, um, in our conversation, you said something really interesting about status too, which made me think about, you know, there's this binary, there's this good, bad binary, but that capitalism also wants to tell all of us to um, be constantly seeking status and constantly saying not only is there good and bad, but I need to prove that I'm good and others are bad and I need to show that and I need to, yeah, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it, it ties into a little too with the whole crawling anecdote in the sense that like, you know, there's a hierarchy of bodies and, you know, one of the lowest um, forms of stat, like the least amount of status that you can have in in most cultures, if not all of them, is being disabled. Uh, and so, you know, for for people where there is any element of choice in whether or not they're perceived as disabled, the pressure is to choose the non-disabled option. Right. Which usually translates into not using mobility aids if they need them, not, right. you know, like doing the things that are... Uh, creating the environments that are conducive to their mental health, you know, like not treating their bodies with accept, like n not cultivating acceptance for, you know, who they are and how they function. And, you know, going back to what you said about, about there not being those expectations on me and therefore I was sort of free to, to kind of do my own thing. Right. Uh, I don't have a choice. I am perceived as disabled no matter how, no matter what my sense of myself is. Right. That, that's not something that I can, that I get to consent to, and it isn't something that I have any power over. So not only are people going to perceive that I am disabled, but they're also going to project all of their ideas about what that means, and I cannot do anything about it. Right. <laughs> and, you know, I think one of the um, misconceptions about... You know, me specifically because I'm so adventurous, but it, it gets thrown at pretty much any disabled person who is in public right. <laughs> alone, especially if they're like on their own. Right. Is is that, you know, our accomplishments are seen as are taken as proof that there are no limits, that whatever obstacles you perceive, you can overcome. Right. And, you know. What's interesting to me about that is that I feel like my actual relationship to limits is the complete opposite in that I'm I'm very aware of what they are and I think that they does, that they need to be respected. Right. And that uh, when people look at me doing things and tell themselves a story about how I'm overcoming my limits, what they're really revealing are the expectations that they have of themselves. Right. Of their own body, <laughs> that, that they have internalized this idea that that limits um, like your own physical limits, your own, you know, natural parameters are a thing to be fought against and a thing to sort of like uh, jockey for status with, you know. Right. Whereas and you're actually when you so you also do aerial silks and you do all this amazing poll work and um get you get these comments on your videos that are like you're such an inspiration you're no such, yeah you're such a light 
And I love that. I love the, like, me in my underwear <laughs> on a pole and people just, like, crying emojis, right. you know? Like, right. just so touched. And meanwhile, you're doing something that is about your personal strengths. You're not... Yeah, it's just based on my body mechanics. I think, I mean, that's, like, you know, to finish off my point yes, was, about status, I was going to say that, like, um, because like the way that people are going to perceive me, the fact that they're going to see that disability, that that's an area that I have no control over. Right. That's a limit that I respect because I cannot get into people's brains and change their, their projections. Right. And, you know, like with respect to that limit, I then can also say, this isn't mine to be responsible for. I'm not responsible for what they think about disability. I have to manage these things. You know, I have to deal with this. But I don't have to, you know, like respond to it or take it on as though like it's collaborative because it's not. It's it's put on me. It's about them. It's about them. Right. And, you know, I, I often will feel sort of, you know, sad for what that says about maybe their own experience of their own body. But it doesn't really reflect anything about my own experience or like, right. you know, and so, uh, but a lot of that, I think that that sort of projection or that extracting of inspiration comes from that hierarchy of bodies and them trying to experience where they are on that hierarchy mm-hmm. and disability is the thing that takes you out of it. Like there's just no, that's it. Game over. Right. So, you know, I think uh, for me, I've experienced that as kind of freeing. Um, whereas when people are really still sort of stuck in that, trying to maintain or gain status in the hierarchy of bodies that like the suffering just seems really immense to me. Well, Um, that, that idea of limitations as freeing and sort of exploring the parameters of your own limitations as something exciting rather than trying to say, I shouldn't have limitations. They shouldn't exist or, uh, because everyone, or I don't want anyone to know what they are, so I'm going right. to stay within these parameters where they remain invisible. Right. Right. Like I'm, I'm not going to crawl because that's going to make it very obvious to everyone else that I cannot walk, that I'm weaker than them, that I'm lower than th- I'm literally lower than them. Right. Like I'm right. on the ground like a dog. What is their? How are they supposed to respect me? And, you know, the answer is they just are. (laughs) Right. (laughs) They just are supposed to. Well, and also, do you care? I mean, a lot of what this is is about, um, you know, external perception and other people's ideas of who you are. And I think you're someone who doesn't give too much of a shit about what other people think think of you I mean we all do to some degree but the more we can de-emphasize that in our lives and say okay prioritize our own experience and how we feel and what's important to us and we have no control over what other people think of us and also who it's not it's not our business and I think another way that that like having a very visible disability has been has been a weird turn of luck in this area is that I have had uncountable experiences of people telling me I can't do something right. I know I physically can. And it ha- it really, like, takes the... I mean, it just discredits, essentially, 
anybody else's opinion on, you know, what I can and can't do. Right. And to the point where I'm, I'm kind of, I mean, I'm in my forties now. And so, you know, after 40 years of this, my skepticism of other people's permission is very, <laughs> like, it's immediate. Yeah. I am not listening to you. Like, <laughs> Uh, and so, and, and because these are tangible moments, like this isn't like I have some vague idea that some people think that I shouldn't be, it's not abstract. It is a person saying, no, you can't do that. And I won't permit you to do that. Right. So therefore I'm forced into having some kind of negotiation where I know for a fact they are wrong. Right. But they may or may not have power over me in that situation. And so I have to have incredibly finely tuned senses of where the power actually lies and who can actually govern what I do and do not do. Right. And how do I sneak around it? How do I, you know, like railroad over them if necessary and possible? How do I do it anyway? <laughs> right. Like, you know, those are where my, that's where my brain is at, right? It, again, it goes back to like, I'm thinking about the solution, how I know I can do this. How do I get myself permission? If I have to wrest it from the jaws of whoever is right. arbitrarily feels like they've got authority in that moment. Well, um, and I think that's really helpful because it has made authority tangible and it has made them a doofus. Totally. Like, they're just so wrong so often um, that I, it, it's hard for me to take it seriously. And because then I'm immediately thinking about the practical element of doing it anyway, it is, it, I don't spend a lot of time in those cases being overly concerned about what they're thinking of me as a, as a person. Right. I'm busy. <laughs> right. You're busy doing the thing that they said you couldn't do. Or, or, and this does happen, I don't want to make it sound like I'm just, like, always gung-ho. Sometimes I come up against something like that and go, this is not fucking worth it. Right. And I go home. Right. And I take care of myself in that way. Right. You know, like, there is a lot of choosing battles. Or I call somebody who I know can, nav like, negotiate on my behalf and take some of that stress off and say, right. you know I'm right. Right. But they won't listen to me. Can you, you know, take this on? I mean, this thing about authority is really interesting to me. Because my book is targeted towards teenagers, there's something really complicated that happens when we're that age around, you know, maybe beginning to question authority. But I think, unfortunately, even more than that, probably trying to fit in in a way that authority wants you to fit in you know you're in a, a, you're in school there's a very clear system of achievement there's potentially very um intense expectations from family from teachers about how you will achieve and what you will accomplish and how you should be and depending on what kind of community you're in you know your everything down to your sexuality of what kind of person you are supposed to be becoming and i just want to like offer these children the empowerment to that you have because your life experience was so undeniable it was so clear cut to you that all authority could be so wrong about you that there was there was no question of well maybe i'm wrong and i i wish that it was that clear 
for everybody. I will say, though, like, I knew I was right, but being a teenager and, like, a preteen was the worst for that. Right. That was not, like, that's helping me out a lot now. But there was nothing, like, I don't know how, honestly, how I got through that whole period of time where I knew they were wrong and I had no power, you know, like the, the, the greatest limiting force in my life, this is going to sound so ridiculous, are insurance companies yeah. and insurance companies dictate what schools do. So sports I couldn't be involved in, classes that I couldn't take, the way that I got left behind during fire drills, like all of this oh stuff, God. like, I mean, I had no... I had no say, but I knew I was right, and I suffered greatly for it. And I can't imagine it's that different now for, right. for people going through that now. And so I have great sympathy for that. But, you know, if there was a way that, like, you could just not know that as a teenager, and then as soon as you gain the ability to, like, act on your own internalized sense of authority, it suddenly arose within you, and there was no—you didn't have to go through that period of, like— Dark hormonal conflict. I, that's what I would wish. <laughs> but I don't. I don't think that's really. You know, that's not really. That's a fantasy. Um. So yeah, I mean, I get asked a lot, like you know, with what I know now about disability or ableism, and you know, myself. What would I tell? You know, my younger self, my teenage self, and I'm like, not a damn thing. She didn't need any more extra knowledge than anybody else had around her that was not the problem me not understanding things was not the problem right. it was that I couldn't make other people know what I knew Right. and I, I couldn't force them to give me space to do the things that I that I felt like doing and that the, I lost those battles a lot more than I won them at that time Right. and I'm just glad that uh, I didn't I don't know lose belligerence <laughs> Totally. <laughs> like that those are aspects of my personality that can be a little um stayed they stayed around so that as I got older and I could actually exercise autonomy right. in a real way and I had choice um that I could navigate those choices with everything that I learned about what was what was withheld from me deliberately by people who were wrong. Right. <laughs> like, I get, you know, like it's a kind of revenge in a way, I guess. I love, no, life is, <laughs> living your life as revenge is totally a great plan. I have no problems with that. I mean, I'm really interested also in you talking about um, playing sports and being really physical as a child. And I wonder if that... Right. It's almost like you came to understand your own needs of your body in such a clear way and be feel really grounded in that. So that then also when people are telling you what your needs are and they're wrong, you know that they're wrong, which is something that a lot of people, I think, it takes a lot longer for most people to figure out what the true needs of their bodies are, because we're all being told what the needs of our bodies should be, you know, whether it's about an idea of diet or exercise or the way your body should look or the kind of clothing you should wear, um, the way you should present your gender. I mean, we're all 
everyone, regardless of disability, is being given that kind of messaging. And to they become such a radical statement when we do finally figure out what our actual personal needs are to then assert them and say, actually, I don't need that. I don't need to be told that, um, you know, a cis man shouldn't be able to wear a dress. You know, I want to wear a dress. Like, whatever it is, those are my needs. And I actually get to assert them. And it's very radical to be able to do that. And I think that must be why people see you in sort of a radical light so many, so often. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I think I'm never really quite doing what people expect. Yeah. I think that's, that just, even if you're not um, being assertive in the process of being unexpected, that is easily considered radical by, by a lot of people. Right. Um, and that goes like in every direction. Right. So, you know, like, because it's predicated on what people's expectations are. Right. And again, who knows? Yeah. Like those come from like, there are people the other day I was on my way to the circus, um, gym to train on the silks. And on my way up the hill to the gym, a woman said, stopped, very concerned, and said, can I give you a hand up the hill? Because her expectation was that, like, that was very difficult for me. Of course, I know I'm on my way to climb 20 feet in the air and <laughs> dangle by an arm <laughs> for an hour until my hands give out. Like, you know, the, the, the expectations, the context are always shifting. And I think that makes it very difficult, like, the idea of being grounded in your, your own needs, um, you know, I think is a, it can be a bit misleading because they're in constant flux. And not only is the context of other people's expectations affecting what you feel you can access, but your own context or your own sense of, you know, what your expectations of yourself are, are right. also changing. So your grounding maybe in your sense of your own needs, but like my experience of that is that it is a very shifty ground. <laughs> Yes. Well, it rolls. Yes, it literally <laughs> rolls. And that also the the capitalist narrative isn't isn't doesn't have any room for that idea of change and of being in flux. That there is an idea of like arriving at a finished product and our body is the product and right. it should arrive at I have lost this amount of weight i have accomplished this specific body goal like there it's this idea of these and then and then end of story and then i will stay that way until i die and you know even in thinking about our health and dealing with medical issues that idea that there is um one specific kind of treatment and that treatment will quote unquote cure and then you will quote unquote feel better and like you know my own experience with chronic health problems is you're much better off having exactly what you say this like idea of being in flow with it being your needs being different every day and that's okay and how can you tune in to 
pay attention to what they are today. Because if you're spending all day thinking about that it shouldn't be this way, then you're not looking at the way that it is. And you're introducing shame into just your day. It's just your day. This is what's happening today. (laughs) Why are we feeling bad about what's happening today? Um, I wanted to ask you about one more thing. Obviously, I can talk to you for hours and hours. But I want to ask you one more thing, and then I'm going to pull us um, some Oracle cards. <laughs> Just for fun. Um, I was really interested in uh, what you had to say about the idea that you're because you post a lot on social media, you post, you know, you're very active in posting, um, you know, these videos and you get these reactions of people saying you're such a light and projecting (laughs) all of these uh, things about themselves and their ideas of their own limitations onto you that often you get this idea of body positivity projected onto you or someone will kind of label you as maybe like body positive social media person and what your feelings are around that because I thought that was I'm I'm really interested in that um that's really interesting because that used to happen a lot and I don't know is body positivity still a thing because it hasn't happened to me in a while <laughs> that's good I do wonder because I think that I think that there's been quite a bit of that whole genre of body positivity that got appropriately uh, dismantled. Yeah. You know, I think that a lot of voices kind of pointed out some some elements of it that were, you know, maybe not great long term strategies for living like they were there was something really great about it for social media purposes and what the goals of social media platforms are um but that not necessarily the way we live our lives in a day but you know the way that it happens to me sort of before body positivity and and then continuing is is that that um i get called an activist or an advocate a lot And I think it falls into the same category of body positivity. And the implication is that because I am doing what I'm doing in a disabled body, that I am carrying a very specific message and that they know what it is based on how my body fits into the symbolism of whatever movement they're associating me with. So it has nothing to do with what I've actually said or what I'm presenting. And it has everything to do with this like, oh my gosh, you are in a wheelchair in public in, in well, public being the social media public, because I don't tend to roll down the street in my underwear, but I am frequently on the internet in my underwear. <laughs> <laughs> internet public. Yeah. Um, and you don't, you're like, I'm not writing messages qualifying the picture by naming my shame first. You know, like I'm not my avenue into my confidence is not saying, don't worry, I hated myself first. Right. Which I think is a really like common sort of there's this that's how we commonly frame our experiences of of pleasure and confidence and self-esteem even or connection is with the like, no, 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 don't don't worry. I definitely hated myself. First. Right. And I didn't really not right. in, you know, like I've, I've I, you know, like. 
have insecure moments and certainly things about me that I feel insecure, but they're not physical. Right. So when I experience shame, it's much more interpersonal and very private. It's something that would come up with someone that I'm having a particular interaction with. It's not something that like, you know, a view of me at a superficial level would reveal. Right. It's not relevant to that. Um, and so, you know, I get these narratives that come at me where people are like, well, obviously you didn't know you could pole dance and, you know, you just wanted, you envied the other women and, you know, then some like savior angel, non-disabled person was like, I'll help you find <laughs> your true self. Yeah. Um, and you think it sounds like I'm exaggerating, but I've been, I've had people tell me to me that this is my story. Yeah. And then I was like, but no, um, when I show up in an aerial studio, generally other people envy me because I'm stronger than them and I've been doing it longer and I, you know, have performance experience and, uh, and I knew I could do it. Like the idea that I wouldn't know what I can do with my own body is so common in non-disabled people. And yet so weird to me, like, do you not know what you like? I don't know. It just, I have a hard time getting my head around anyways. That's beside the point. <laughs> you were talking about... Oh. Body positivity. Yeah. So, yeah, there is this, like, the expectation being that if I have a physical disability, if what is wrong with me is visible to other people, the necessity for this narrative is that I know it and I hate it. Right. And I either can try to do everything possible to change it or hide it, or I've gone through this very specific set of steps that were sort of defined by this movement. Right. The idea that it just didn't, the premise is wrong, doesn't occur to people. And it's the same with advocacy, where it's like, you know, advocacy is not a thing I identify with because it's not a choice that I'm making. I have to advocate in order to participate. I don't get to not advocate right right. um and so how i advocate is going to be dependent on my personality what i'm comfortable with the kind of situations that i put myself in that require that but you know like it's not something that i'm doing optionally you know what i'm doing by choice what i care about is art i'm a performance artist i'm performing i'm creating performances based on concepts that are interesting to me things that are compelling to me things that i'm feeling and experiencing and the advocacy is incidental and involuntary. So to have right. people identify me as that, to say, like, what you're doing is under this umbrella, to me, I find very, like, one, I respect advocates and actual, like, you know, activism is hard work and it's it takes very specific skills that I don't really have, actually. I've, you know, like, I have done my collaborations with activists and I am often bringing them down. <laughs> I don't have the stamina for that the way that I have the stamina for art and performance. Um, And so, yeah, I I found it very interesting the way that it's, I think the intention is, is one of respect and, and acknowledgement, but that even with the intent to be respectful and acknowledge my contributions, people still are projecting you know, what that they think my motivations are and, you know, what my goals would be and who I'm representing in the process. And, you know, like there's just still a lot of, um, assumptions. And it reminds me a little bit, I think Mindy Cowling talks about this all the time where people are like, 
shocked about her confidence and they want to ask her how she got it because the assumption is that you're fat so you shouldn't you shouldn't have confidence what have you done you know weird how and it's just you can't it's a trap right right the question and the assumption and the premise is a trap and it's a trap not for me but for the people asking it and the people who want to know because it's just entrenching in your mind that 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 they're intrinsically linked that my disabled body and a hatred of it come together indelibly right and in order for me to not hate myself i really am in a battle because it's an, it's it's natural it's Again, self-loathing yeah like you just have to that's it you have to feel that and so there's no way out well, and, be, and the problem is it's still engaging with this capitalist good-bad binary. It's, say, it's still saying, you know, if we have said that certain kinds of bodies are bad and now we're correcting that, so now we must say, okay, they are good. And you must you must be engaged in that correction because I see you, you know, trying to show me that you your body is good. And it's like, that's not what you're doing you're just experiencing your body outside of an idea of a binary of what anyone else wants to label it yeah i mean it it really is in at its heart an extension of being a kid playing on the monkey bars like right you know kids are not body positive because there's they're not resisting you know a negative uh sense of their bodies in the first place or they shouldn't be um so the idea that we are as we get older Yeah, I don't know. I just, I I think what's interesting to me is how um, the irony is that means that anytime I am presenting and performing, I am resisting the body negativity and and these assumptions. But the message isn't what people think it is. The message is, why don't I get to just be an aerialist to you? Right. Right. You know, and what does that say about you? Not what does it say about me? Right. Uh-huh. 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 Yeah. <laughs> um Aaron, <laughs> I love talking to you. I just do. I want to know how Frida is doing. She we might have maybe heard her in the background a little bit, a little baby coos in the <gasps> baby cooing in the other room she's doing really well it's crazy i mean i will say actually the, the, i mean the expectations around bodies and how they work that comes up when you are pregnant when you give birth when you are trying to breastfeed i mean i have never before in my life experienced such an extreme example of having expectations about how my body was going to function and those coming from outside of me, you know, those coming from other people and that when my body doesn't function that way, being left so high and dry and being so, um, you know, alone in that and... Luckily, I have enough of your instincts to sort of problem solve and figure it out and be like, okay, let's see how is how is my body working right now if it's not working the way that I expect it to. But, oh boy, that has been very interesting. 
So it's been on my mind a lot, a lot around around this topic. And the more ease I could give myself around just being like, okay, this. And then, of course, once I talk to anyone who's been through it, hearing them say, my body didn't function the way I expected it to either. Of course it didn't. Didn't, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Frida's doing great. <laughs> Frida's body is functioning great. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot more farting uh, with a newborn than I knew. Maybe not all newborns fart as much as mine does, but mine farts a lot. It's a really farty one. eh? Yeah, but uh, I love that about her. (laughs) I do really enjoy baby farting TikToks. Oh, I haven't experienced that yet. I think I think they're like physical therapists or whatever that are just like, oh, 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 and then the baby farts. It's great. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to look for that immediately. I can't believe that hasn't found me yet. Oh, man. Um, okay, well, I will put, I will take the camera back here for a moment, um, okay. even though I know the people want to look at you, but. I have been enjoying a great view of your rosy cheeks. I know. I got really... I get warm when I get... um, In front of a ring light? In front of a ring light. (laughs) And I get get a little... spotlight. I don't know. I just get... I I mean, and I get all fired up about capitalism. You know me. (laughs) I get like, we must must end capitalism for the children's sake. All right, I'm going to pull us some cards from my favorite deck. This is the Vessel Oracle deck. It's so cute. So cute. Um, and I will ask for some cards that are for you and for me and whoever's watching and whoever um, watches later. Let's see what we get here. Okay, love this. All right, we have pulled communication. Oh, yeah, I love that. And rest. Ooh. Oh, those go very well together with this topic. I know, I really love that. What is that? um, Yeah, yeah. What does that bring up for you, Erin? Well, can I see the communication image again? Yeah. Because I think there was a cool thing happening with... Are those bracelets on the hand? The hands are snakes. The hands are kind of snakes. They have bracelets. Their eyes Eyes. looking at each other. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first thing that comes up for me is how rest is a form of communication. In particular, that it is an opportunity for, you know, your body to speak to you. Right. Um, And I think... I love resting. It's yeah. one of my favorite things. I'm a very restful person, um, which I think people don't. It's an, it's another thing that people don't expect that I, as an adventurous, yeah, as a perceived adventurous person, yes, unconfirmed the rumors. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I may be adventurous. Yes, um, but no, I rest a lot, uh, regularly, daily, weekly. I, you know, rest is built into the whole 
process and I rest in a lot of ways. My chair is a place of rest for me, um, the way that I sit in it and uh, the sort of role that it plays in my life. Um, but I also spend a lot of time lying down in bed and, you know, those times of inactivity or quieter activity or gentler activity are, are communicative times for me. Right. Hearing what my thoughts are thinking and feeling what my body's feeling and without needing to make it do anything in that moment, like there's no goal. Right. Right. I love that. I mean, because when I think about, Right, taking care of our own needs and that one of the things we tend to feel is unproductive is something that we desperately need, which is resting, right? I love that you said that. That's very meaningful to me, this idea that our bodies are communicating to us even through rest. That's Mm -hmm. huge. Yeah, thank you for that. (laughs) <laughs> um, I'm going to be thinking about that one. Yeah. Um, Aaron's book. Let's look at it one more time. If you really love me, throw me off the mountain. It's so such a beautiful book. I highly, highly recommend it. This is my book, Luminary, which is coming out November 8th. Um, I'm doing these conversations on Instagram Live Sunday at 3 with all the amazing people who spoke to me for this book. Um, It is purely selfish. It's just just so fun for me, and I'm really happy um, for anyone else to get to experience these people's wise words. Um, Erin, thank you so much. Thank you. It's so great just to see you and get to Thank you for your you. selfishness. I enjoyed it. Immensely. You're welcome. You know what? Anytime. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. Um, okay, I will talk to you soon, hopefully. Snuggles to Frida. I will give her all the snuggles. Bye. bye. Okay, bye. Um, people on live, thank you for watching. Mwah. Hey, this is Kate Skelsa. Thanks so much for listening to our conversation. If you want to know more, check out my website, kateskelsa.com.